Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 478. But you can think through ways in which social media is a very powerful force for enhancing what we really need, which is face-to-face social interaction. It's when it starts to become the interaction itself that we get into trouble. We live in a world that is always on, where everyone is always connected, but we feel increasingly disconnected. Why? The answer lies in our brains. There is mounting evidence that overuse of smartphones and social media is rewiring our brains. In fact, I talk about this toward the end of my book, Read to Lead, and this is resulting in a losing deal. We're neglecting the relationships that sustain us and keep us healthy in favor of weaker and more ephemeral ties. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. Reading, in particular, has taken a back seat to many of the things I just mentioned, in part because it's becoming more and more difficult for us to concentrate long enough to read in the first place. That's just one of many topics we'll grapple with today, as I welcome Dr. Carl Marcy to the show. He's written a book called Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. I'll ask Carl about the impact that modern media and technology multitasking has on our attention spans, the consequences of spending time with an increasing number of virtual friends rather than investing in real-world relationships, the impact on not just our mental health, but our physical health of spending more time indoors, what it means to choose JOMO over FOMO, and lots more. That reminds me, that's one of many concepts we discuss in my note-making mastery course, my online live cohort, which is coming back later this month for the first time since January. We kick off cohort number five on June the 20th. That's a Tuesday. And I'd love to have you for the next iteration of note-making mastery. Lots of improvements have been made to the live cohort since January. Though January's cohort included some artificial intelligence-related content, so much has happened in the last five months. There's even more AI-related content in the course as it relates to note collection and capture, note organization, note distillation, and ultimately creating with those building blocks. If you're frustrated with taking notes on the content you consume, be that books, articles on the web, YouTube videos, or TEDx talks, and not doing anything with that information, then note-making mastery is especially for you. You go from merely taking notes you never use to actually making notes designed to serve future you. What do I mean by future you? Like just in time, like exactly when you need them, they're there. You'll learn how to better collect and capture your notes, what to write, how much, what tools to use, and when, how to better connect and organize your notes so that you can easily and effectively and sometimes serendipitously find them later when it matters, how to better crystallize, develop, and distill your notes so that your unique response to the inputs, in other words, your own ideas and insights generated from the content you consume, doesn't fall through the cracks, and how to better create from or out of your notes. After all, what's the point of consuming all the content you consume in the first place 
if you never share what you've learned with the world, whether that's online, at work, or even in conversation. And, and that's just the start. Imagine it's just a few weeks after having completed the cohort. My goal for you at that time is that you'll have a library of notes at your fingertips that are more helpful and useful to you than all your previous year's worth of notes combined. Simply put, if you want to improve retention and comprehension of the content you consume for learning and growth, if you want to be the go-to person for ideas and insights when everybody else gets stuck, if you'd like to see your outputs that result from your content consumption efforts lead to new connections, well-deserved promotions, and opportunities previously out of your reach, then your notes, your personal knowledge management system is the difference maker. The one thing that all else being equal is going to give you a crystal clear advantage. Alumni of Note Making Mastery have reported things like increased efficiency with their time, being able to capture and organize ideas and notes the first time through a book or other material, improved listening skills, leaps in their professional growth and development, more consistency in publishing content, enhanced reading comprehension and retention, becoming better conversationalists, starting or completing their first book, and much, much more. Again, the next Note Making Mastery cohort is going to kick off on Tuesday, June 20th, with our live cohort meetings happening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, all the meetings are recorded, so if you miss one live or can't be there for any of the live cohorts themselves, you have lifetime access to the recording. Each session includes about 60 to 75 minutes of teaching with time for Q&A to follow. Again, we kick off June 20th. The dates are June 20th. June 27th. Then we skip July 4th, as that's a holiday here in the States, of course. Then we come back July 11th and wrap up on July 18th. So June 20th and 27th, then July 11th and 18th. As a Read to Lead podcast listener, I got a special discount for you. Going to get you $147 off your registration when you go to jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. Click Choose a Plan, select Note Making Mastery, And you're on your way to joining us on June the 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern for session number one. Love to see you there. Again, one more time, the address, jeffbrown.me. Dr. Carl Marcy is a leader in the fields of social and consumer neuroscience, is chief medical officer at Kava Capital, and was formerly chief neuroscience at the Nielsen Company. He's also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's here to talk to us today about how to guard against digital media consumption and, well, media in general. His new book is called Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. Well, Carl, I'm excited about this book. I did not realize it had been out uh, for a year. I'm late to the party, but I want to change that, at least for my audience, talking to you today. So thanks for being here. really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation, Jeff. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Uh, Gloria Marks, who wrote a book that came out earlier this year called Attention Span. This is a hot topic right now. Of course, I think back to 2010 and the book, The Shallows. Mm -hmm. That was a big inspiration, by the way. That that was well-written. And uh, if I recall, at the end of the book, there was a a call to action, which is Mm -hmm. anybody thinking about this space should contribute. So I remember saying, well, I, I have some thoughts on this space. Yeah. And of course, you go beyond just the internet. We're talking about media of all kinds here. Um, talk right. first about what are the trends in our level of media consumption today compared to over the last several decades? Yeah, I, I think that's an important place to start because I don't think people fully appreciate just uh, how much media we've come to consume relative to the past. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I talk about in the book how 
I had a front row seat to really a transformation in our country and the world, working uh, with technology that allowed us in very sophisticated ways to measure the emotional and cognitive responses of audiences to media. And this company was started in 2006 called Interscope Research. And of course, in 2007, the atom splitting moment when Steve Jobs announces uh, the iPhone, which changes all of our lives. And so we, we were well positioned to watch things change over time. That company was sold to Nielsen, the big ratings company. And so I was a senior executive, the first chief neuroscientist uh, at Nielsen, traveled the world giving talks, but obviously had access to a lot of data. And I remember seeing this slide and then co-opting it, which basically said, roughly speaking, in 2002, American adults consumed in total about you know 40, 45 hours of, of media a week. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. That's a full-time job. <laughs> and then flash forward about 10 years, and it's literally a step function over time, more and more and more. And what's interesting is that Television and radio, which dominated media consumption in uh, you know the early knots, certainly late nineties, you know, slowly sort of plateaus and then begins to go down. Mm. Uh, Two thousand and eleven was the first year in the history of Nielsen ratings, which go back almost ninety years, that American consumers uh, watched less TV than the year before. Mm. Yeah, what I always said is, do you honestly think people were consuming less media? No, they <laughs> more than made up for it uh, with the supercomputer in their pocket. So um, about 10 years later, the consumption uh, doubled. And, you know, we're talking about 80, 90 hours. I mean, it, it, these are incredible statistics. And I started to think about that. It's like, how is that possible? Right. These are, you know, fully functioning adults, right, who, who have lives. And the only way that's possible is what's called media multitasking, meaning the television's on and we're on our phone. Uh, we're in the car and, and someone else is driving and we're talking and the radio's on and we're on. Our phone. Like you begin to sort of think about it and like, OK, maybe maybe that is possible, but it's still an extraordinary part of our lives. You made me think of uh, something you write about in the book. Speak to our use of media, whether traditional or digital. I think it's probably more digital as as a mood regulator. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I think that was a, one of the big insights we learned um, almost by accident uh, as we were monitoring people in their home. So I talk about this in the book. There's this big study for Time Warner. In particular, it was the Time uh, Inc., uh, which include Time Magazine, People Magazine at the time. And they were very concerned about the iPad, right? Tablet computers, right? Are people going to stop buying print magazines? Turns out they were right to be worried. Um, and uh, we ended up doing this uh, large study just to see how are these technologies, iPads and smartphones, uh, interacting with traditional media, newspapers and, and magazines. So we literally monitored uh, a group of people, two groups, actually, uh, uh, younger adults and older adults. We called them digital uh, natives, people who grew up in a world with the Internet and Internet connected devices and digital immigrants, of which I'm a card carrying member, uh, you know, who remember, you know, phones connected to walls and Ditto. You know, time before the Internet. Right. Um, I remember black and white TV and my children are like, what's that? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we had so we had these very sophisticated technology. We had cameras that clip to people's eyeglasses. So we they're called point of view cameras. So we can literally see what they're seeing. And then they had a, a biometric device on, on their wrist and chest, which measured their physiologic responses. So, so we could sort of get a visual attention and an emotional response. And we measured 300 hours of people uh, in their life. We called it a biometric day in the life. Mm. Uh, and as we were parsing the data, the, the only way to really understand what 
you know, people are seeing is to have human coders. So we had two people watch every second of every video and code every 30 seconds what they were doing. And then every 10 seconds what they were doing. And then we were like, oh my gosh, we got to do almost every second. So every second of 300 hours got coded. And then we had this massive data set we could start to analyze. Mm-hmm. And what we saw is that people were doing an awful lot of switching between all kinds of media platforms. Now, the the older folks were switching between the newspaper and the television. The younger Mm -hmm. folks were switching between, you know, the television and their tablet or their smartphone. And by the way, we recruited, you know, this is 2011. We recruited heavy users of technology. You had to own a smartphone and own uh, an iPad. So these were early adopters. And we saw two things. One, the media attention span, just the, the switching back and forth of the eyeballs, was off the charts. And it was higher for the so-called digital natives, the younger population than the older population. So it looked like they had a shorter attention span. So that got some headlines. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, when we looked at the emotion response, we saw different patterns. And that pattern essentially was that when people got bored, they would switch to another platform. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so their arousal would come down and then they would switch and they would go back up. And we started to see this over and over again. And that gave me this idea that, well, I wonder if part of the switching, like, because the question is, why are people going back and forth so much, mm, right? Mm. And they're sort of shifting their attention. Okay, so uh, two two issues. One, well, how do you know people who are a little older just don't have a longer attention span? We kind of know the brain matures, and maybe that has nothing to do with media. Okay. Question two is, you know, does this look like mood regulation? Like, is this idea that possibly what's driving the switching is coming from? their boredom. Well, we did a few other studies. We confirmed uh, five years later, larger study in the home that in fact, uh, people's media attention span was getting shorter and it was still a function of age. So the older we get, the longer our attention span, that's true, but everyone's was getting shorter in just five years. And then secondly, in other studies, we saw that people really were switching to new media or new stimuli in search of keeping their emotional arousal up. And, and if you think mm. about it, it kind of makes sense. Like what happens in an elevator? Everybody picks up their phone. You're sitting on a bus. Everybody picks up their phone. You're standing in line at the store. So what we've learned is that we can, when we get bored, well, we don't have to suffer boredom because we have titillation and stimulation in arms reach away. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I appreciate about a book like this is you know the research that you've done, but also the research you reference Throughout the book, I think I counted 37 pages of notes in the back of the book related to some of that, that research. I want to talk next about just the impact of, of, of our attention spans, how the, this consumption has impacted learning and memory and thriving. And as an advocate for reading books, and in particular physical books, the impact on reading. Talk about some of that adverse. I mean, it's not all bad news, but talk about some of that adverse impact. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I reference in the book, um, you know, the so-called uh, Google effect, right? Which mm-hmm. academics found, and you know what that suggests, and I see it in my own life um, as I've migrated from taking paper notes, which you know I, I miss because I would rem- when I write things down on paper, I tend to remember it better. Mm-hmm. When I write things in the computer on a on a notepad, um, I tend to remember where I put it, and that's exactly what the Google effect is. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you have if you have access to online information um, and you know you will, you're less likely to remember things, uh, and you're more likely to remember how to access it. You know, and so you can you can draw your own conclusions about whether that's good or bad. Um, but but you can imagine in terms of you know retaining facts uh, that that we can draw on to uh, do uh, all kinds of planning and and thinking about the world that might be a problem in terms of reading. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in the book uh, looking at a developmental 
perspective. So, so I think one of the contributions I'd like to think of the book is that uh, we're taking a neuroscience lens from birth to adulthood, and we're using neuroscience. In other words, what is the difference between the brain of a two-year-old and a five-year-old and a 15-year-old? And how should that inform how we think about our relationship to technology? Right? That, mm-hmm. that was the big idea. Um, and when I got to three to five ages, uh, age three to five, um, and I had my own children around that age, and I realized how important reading was, I started to do some research on reading. You know, what is uh, the difference between reading children a paper book, as you say, versus a, uh, a an electronic book? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the reason there's 37 pages of notes is that academics have studied all kinds of things. Um, and I was very uh, I was very intrigued by a couple findings. One of them was um, the difference between uh, paper and pixels, as I say, um, is that with paper, you tend to have more interaction with the child as a, as a caregiver or an adult. Um, you tend to talk more about the characters and the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the child tends to engage more with that story and with you and, 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 the, and your emotions related to that story, which is exactly what you want to have happen as they also watch you look at letters and transform letters from a page mm-hmm. uh, in this phenomenal skill we've developed as humans called reading. Um, when it's on an electronic device, there tends to be more focused on, oh, push this button, push that button, right? They get distracted by all these things. And, and there's less attention to uh, the actual content and the actual reading. And there's even some data showing there's less physical touch, which we know is really important for kids. Mm. Okay, so that was finding number one. Finding number two uh, was some you know, brilliant work out of the, uh, I believe, the University of Cincinnati, where they looked at the children who were heavy users of media, learning to read, three to five years old, and children who were not heavy users of media. Parents were maybe a little more disciplined about that. Mm. And they put them in brain scanners and they had them read. And at this point, we sort of know what a reading network looks like in the brain. And what they found, which was kind of sad, is that the kids who did less media had stronger reading networks and the kids who did a lot of media had weaker reading networks. And then that sort of supports the the, the third big finding of this age group, uh, roughly speaking, is that um, research a number of years ago was looking at ADHD and what causes it. Mm-hmm. And this, it was a little controversial to say that, oh, you watch too much TV or consume too much media, you're at higher risk for ADHD. Well, except the research actually supports that. And mm-hmm. what they found is that a child under the age of three for every hour a day that they consume media, their risk of ADHD at age seven goes up 10%. Mm-hmm. So, so all these things start to come together in a way that I think, um, at least for me, started to get me very nervous. And the research, too, does it not suggest that video learning for ages up to three is kind of a misnomer, right? That's right. That's right. This is the video transfer deficit. So um, I I talk in the book about uh, uh, Baby Einstein. Remember Baby Einstein? Oh, yeah. Right. So this was very popular when when we were coming of age. And uh, there was a time in the U.S. where two thirds of households with a child under the age of three had at least one DVD from from Baby Einstein. And Baby Einstein was was founded by a a mom who had her first child. And she was in the basement with her husband's video camera. And she had some hand puppets and some some music in the background. It was a lovely idea. And, And her kid just sat there mesmerized and other kids did, too. And and people were bragging about how many videos their their young child could consume, and they looked like they were learning. the The videos won awards 
And the company was purchased by Disney for an undisclosed uh, amount, estimated at around $20 million of revenue a year. Uh, and, and none other than Bob Iger, who was, who's back in the chair at mm-hmm. Disney, uh, said, you know, what, what another great purchase for our families, you know, for educational content. Well, in 2007, uh, research came out that showed that not only were kids who are consuming Baby Einstein not learning more than mm. other kids, they were falling behind. Right. So this presumption that they were actually learning and getting ahead was not only erroneous, they were they were actually doing worse. So the more time these kids spent in front of the videos, the, the worse they were doing in terms of language processing, uh, language acquisition, uh, vocabulary. There was a number of metrics that they were just not doing well. And then the question was why? And this is where academics came and they started doing other research. And the video transfer deficit is interesting. It goes to the neurobiology. Um, The idea here is that a a child before the age of three, their brain is so underdeveloped. And and if you've ever interacted with a two-year-old, it's not hard to see that their their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, right? They're very impulsive. They have very short attention spans. You have to watch them constantly because they could fall and get hurt and get into all kinds of trouble that their brain is so underdeveloped that they lack the neural scaffolding. And I could talk about that in a second to take information from a two dimensional world. Like Mm. we are right now looking at a screen and apply it to a three dimensional world, Mm. the world outside of that screen. And it turns out that that just requires a fair number of neurons and the development of the prefrontal cortex and other areas of the brain at a sufficient level to translate that information in the real world. So what they're really doing is just looking at a bunch of lights and some characters and some words and entertaining themselves. They're mm. not learning. And that's mm. that's really a key difference that I hope people begin to understand is there's a difference between learning and, and entertaining. Mm. I like this mental scaffolding metaphor. Can you talk yeah. a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. If you if you think of a scaffolding, um, you know, outside a building that's having some work done on it, or uh, if you think of uh, you know the frame of a house before you put the the drywall and the bricks mm-hmm. and other things out there, you know how developed and sophisticated that is is an indicator of how much stress that that building or that structure can take, mm-hmm. right? So little kids essentially have little scaffoldings, right? They they can see sight and sound they're they're learning basic language and utterances they're you know they're they're trying to figure out how to walk right i mean really basic stuff uh we we shouldn't be surprised that they lack the the neural you know power to process information from you know a screen to the real world um Mm. it, it it requires a fair amount of brain power as does reading and that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics now recommends people read the second babies get out of the womb, right? You know, mm-hmm. just sit down with them. And, and the data is very clear. You know, think about it. Reading um, is an acquired skill, right? We, we didn't start reading as humans until about 5,000 years ago. And we kind of figured this out late in the game. So that that brain of a, you know, early human 5,000 years ago is pretty similar to the one we have. So mm-hmm. what we do to read is recruit areas of the brain that were not genetically predisposed to reading and, and we have to really train it. And that's why it takes an awful lot of effort and repetition and focus to be able to read. And, and as you know, it's a critical, critical skill for success. Another area covered extensively in the book is social media. What are the consequences of spending time with an increasing number of virtual friends rather than investing in, in real world relationships? Yeah. So now we're marching up the developmental ladder, right? So, you know, you've learned to read, you're kind of navigating school and 
you know, in the in the tween years, uh, going into teen years, and that line's blurring. I'm learning with my children, right? They're all growing up so fast. Is really when when kids begin to separate a bit from their parents and start to develop peer groups. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that social media as a you know technology that facilitates peer-to-peer interaction uh, becomes popular uh, around the age of, you know, 11, 12, 13, and, and onward. So what are the consequences of that? Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of technology and, and social media, like, like the smartphone and any technology uh, is a tool, right? And, and so how we use it is really what determines its outcome, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're using social media to, to post to, you know, loved ones who are far away that, you know, otherwise can't communicate with, if you're using social media to set up a face-to-face event or social interaction or using it to recap an event you just had, right? You can think through ways in which social media is a very powerful force for, for enhancing what we really need, which is face-to-face social interaction. It's when it starts to become the interaction itself that we get into trouble, mm. right? When we begin to rely more on, uh, you know, our thumbs and small screens for, for connecting with one another, um, we 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 fall down, and the reason goes back a little bit to that media as a mood regulator conversation. In that, when you look at uh, the amount of emotional energy and arousal in in humans sitting next to each other, having you know even a, a friendship conversation, it is off the charts compared to sitting down and 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 thumbing through and connecting. Now you still get a little bit of a of a rise out of that, but but it's nowhere near. Um, this guy. I mean, we're talking about like five, 10 X, the magnitude of emotional response in a real human interaction. So if we begin to deprive ourselves of that and substitute small hits, uh, you know, let's call it, let's call it dopamine, right? We, we're substituting little hits of little squirts of dopamine throughout the day, off and on in different ways from large, significant surges that are connected to real people in real situations, you end up with a, a very different brain. Mm. Uh, and I argue in the book, you, you, you put uh, a population at risk for anxiety, depression, ultimately substance use, PTSD, tragically suicide. And we're, we're seeing that across the board. Now, I'm not saying social media or smartphone technology or technology is the only cause of, of these rising rates. There are other things, global pandemics and geopolitics and climate change and lots of things, inflation, lots of things for kids mm-hmm. to be worried about. But but I suspect that this is a, at least a third of the power variance that, that, that is leading to some of these increases. As a young child, as far back as I can remember, I can remember a TV always being on. Mm. In the background, it was black and white at first, <laughs> eventually yes, color. <laughs> you know, we spent a lot more time indoors than our ancestors did. What has been the impact of more time indoors and, and of course, more time in front of screens on our vision? Yeah, well, uh, you know, most of the book is dedicated to mental health. But uh, as I was doing the research, there were some physical health consequences. Uh, and one of them is myopia or uh, nearsightedness. So it was very interesting to me to see across the board rates of myopia, nearsightedness was going up and up and up. Uh, and it was higher in some cultures than others. So I believe it was South Korea, uh, an 18-year-old boy uh, had about a 90% chance of requiring glasses for my mm. I was like, 90%? That sounds really high, right? That's crazy. That means you go to you go to a high school in, in South Korea and then everybody's walking around with glasses. Mm. What, what's going on there, right? And initially... 
people speculated that this had to do with being on screens too much or watching too much TV. Um, they started to control for that and other things. But what it turned out to be was just being inside, like you like you implied. Mm. Uh, and that the the difference between sunlight, even on a cloudy day, and interior light is, you know, about a hundredfold, right? And so again, go back to evolution. We evolved mm. outside. Our eyes require bright light in order to adjust and accommodate. And we also need to look at things that are far away. Mm -hmm. when we're indoors, we're looking at things that are what, a few feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, not 300 feet. Right. So the combination of uh, exposure to light and the, um, the focal point being so close leads to all kinds of vision problems. Now, what are we doing right now? And, and I don't know about you, but I spend an awful lot of time in front of a computer. Right? My <laughs> focal point is like a foot and a half. Right. All day long. Right. And my glasses are getting thicker. And, you know, Same. I try to I try to follow the 20, 20, 20 rule So every 20 minutes, take a 20 second break to look 20 feet away, which, which is a little silly, but it's something. Uh, and, and I think we all have to start to, you know, figure out how to take breaks from technology. Yeah. Better than not doing it at all, for sure. Correct. Uh, I, I lead an online live cohort that's coming back in June called Note Making Mastery, where we make a distinction between note making versus note taking and how to collect knowledge you want to do something with, you want to learn from, you want to connect down the road with, with you know existing ideas, with new ideas that come later, uh, how to synthesize and crystallize that, and then I'll create with that. And one of the things I talk about in Note Making Mastery is something called selective ignorance with everything coming at us these days. We need to be really particular about what we let in, what we keep. And also something I talk about is this concept of JOMO versus FOMO. And so imagine my delight when I was reading the chapter on 10 rules for a healthy tech life balance, where you talk about exactly this. Talk about FOMO versus JOMO in this context. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, so, you know, fear of missing out or FOMO is this... Um, you know, this idea that because we're connected to so many people online that our peer groups are always sharing, um, you know, we can miss something important. Mm. Uh, and that drives us to spend even more time on, on you know, social media and other platforms that this technology enables. And, you know, that is really wonderful for the technology companies and their profits. Um, but, but, you know, it starts to lead to all kinds of problems as we've discussed. So when I came across this idea of JOMO, joy of missing out, I was like, oh, what's that? You know, and it's this idea that if we can disconnect, take a technology break, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's an hour a day or some people are doing sabbaticals like uh, or, or Sabbaths, like Sunday or Saturday, take, mm -hmm. a, take a whole day, which I really like, you know, whatever that looks like for you, but really being intentional about limiting the time you spend on these devices and then focusing on something that's good for your brain. That's what the, the final chapter there you're referring to is about, like mm. 10 ideas that we know are scientifically proven to enhance the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the front part of the brain, the most evolved part of the brain, the one that's the part of the brain that's getting most uh, depleted mm. in this technology world. How do we boost it? How do we make it better? And so the joy of missing out is take, you know, take a real break, you know, exercise, meditation, uh, reading on, on paper, doing something, you know, God forbid, you know, spending time with friends and loved ones uh, without without a screen, um, you know, keeping screens out of dinner time or meal time, you name it, um, and 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 really focus on how you feel after that. And and there's that's where the sort of joy is because when you you're starting to see surveys come out of of you know teens who are like, well, how do you feel after you spend an hour on social media? Well, I feel a little depleted. I feel less energy. I I don't feel great. It's like okay. 
And then how do you feel an hour after doing, you know, X, Y, Z? Oh, I feel pretty good. Like, why don't you focus more on doing things that give you joy? <laughs> rather than Look, there's some controversy about the role of social media in mental health. And I'm aware of that. I write a little bit about it. But I want to be really clear. The controversy is whether and how much the use of social media contributes to, for example, depression. But but if you look study after study after study, and they have these scales of well-being, which is just like, you know, how are you doing overall? None of them show an increase. So regardless of how much social media is contributing to, you know, clinical depression, right? It's pretty clear from the literature that it's not enhancing well-being. So why are we spending all this time doing it? I want to try to squeeze in two questions, not about the book, if I have time. If if sure. not, I can Please. I can chop off one of them. But before I do that, is there anything that I haven't asked about the book that you want to make sure we know? The, the, the one thing we haven't talked about is multitasking, mm-hmm. um, right? We alluded to multitasking in the beginning because how do you consume 90 hours a week of media without some multitasking? Well, right. again, study after study after study shows that multitasking increases error rate and decreases processing time. So, so you actually work slower and make more mistakes, but yet everybody does it because we feel like we're working hard. It's one of these brain tricks. Right. Mm-hmm. We've learned that when we work hard, we're more productive. Well, that's true in every case except multitasking. So one of the other recommendations of the book is, is to, to serially monotask or be very intentional about monotasking. And the one area where I think you know, multitasking really has deadly consequences is in the car. Right. Um, and, and the studies are very, very clear. Uh, 2016 was the first time in 40 years, 40 years that death per miles in this country uh, actually went up. And it's directly related to distractions in the car, the number one contributor being smartphones. So I really think that's a recommendation people need to take seriously. Absolutely. Now, there are a lot of books you reference in your book. Over the course of your career, what have been some of the most impactful books you've read? Yeah. The one that comes to mind by Dan Siegel, it's a book called The Developing Mind. It's a little um, dense, but it's accessible. But he... Mm introduced me. He's a psychiatrist at UCLA and he's become a friend. And um, I I cite him in my book. Uh, He's written many things and now he's like a guru on meditation for the same reasons we were just talking about, right? He he really needs people to connect with the world in a deeper way beyond technology. Um, This was the first book I read that made developmental brain biology accessible and made it make sense to me. Mm. And it really inspired me to, to sort of think about neurobiology, but also think about it from a developmental perspective. Um, and if you know, you've read the book, it, it, it absolutely influenced uh, my organization of this book and, and how I see the world. So I think of that as, uh, as certainly uh, one of the big ones. Last question. I mentioned note making, mastery, collect, connect, crystallize, create. I love to ask this question of authors who are always doing research and reading from all different kinds of sources. What are some of the techniques, tools, or tips you might have that you implement for just keeping track of knowledge, managing your personal knowledge? That's a great question. Um, I I, um, uh, have a wonderful life executive coach uh, who, you know, taught me about, you know, having information capture devices, he calls them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's a notepad or notebooks or computer notes and what what my system, it's evolved over time. But it, it really varies from little scratch notepads 
you know, to, to dedicate a Google sheet by topic. And then there's a couple points in between. So um, what I've learned is, and I also email myself references all the time. So I use my email as a to-do list. I'll send myself an article or something I saw. If it's something I want to post on social media, I'll post it. If it's something I just want to capture for a future book or a book update, I'll put it in that Google sheet. That's kind of how I've organized things. And it seems to be working okay. But to your point, like we're overwhelmed with information. You know, when we were kids, you went out and got information you needed to a library mm-hmm. or uh, other sources. Now it comes to us. And so mm-hmm. it really does need to be a shift in education, which I think you're well aware of to, to how do you, how do you sort of push out things? How do you filter through things with my kids? I'm constantly reminding them, don't believe everything you see on the internet, mm-hmm. right? Just, mm-hmm. just have, have a sense of uh, skepticism, uh, you know, um, trust, but verify. Yeah. Great advice. Well, the book, again, is called Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. Carl, Dr. Marcy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated all you had to share, and I love the book. Jeff, my pleasure, and I, I hope your audience enjoyed the conversation as well. After having read Carl's book, I've got so many highlights and, and colored tabs with little notes written on them that I, that I need to go back through it now that it's been a little while since I've sat down and read it to make sure that the ideas I've had while reading this book actually don't get forgotten, that they go into my notes app or they can be accessed at any time and talk to or connect with other ideas and notes I have from other books and other sources. That's what, again, Note Making Mastery is all about. I talked about that at the beginning of today's episode. If you want to find out more about Note Making Mastery and participate in our June slash July cohort, go to jeffbrown.me. You get $147 off your registration for a limited time. To check out more about uh, Dr. Marcy, his book, Rewired and the links and resources we talked about in today's episode and to find a link to Note Making Mastery as well. Go to the show notes page for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 478 for episode 478. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 478. In a couple of weeks, I'll be welcoming author Zainab Tone, who's written a book called The Case for Good Jobs. And next week on the show, it's another doctor, another PhD holder, Dr. Heather Penny, as we discuss her book, The Life You're Made For, Finding Clarity, Confidence, and Courage to Be Fully Alive. Again, that's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this time. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.